Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Lowe. Dr. Cyril Mania, a professor of psychology, is involved in research funded by a 2019 National Science Foundation grant for a series of studies exploring the relationship between rhythm and reading skills at behavioral, neural, and genetic levels. Mania's areas of expertise are neural entrainment, genetics, and applications to dyslexia and reading disorders. We'll do a deep dive into the mind after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. The newest MTSU police officers are attending the Tennessee Law Enforcement Training Academy with the addition of strict COVID safety rules as the department continues seeking qualified candidates for open positions. The academy is located in Nashville off Lebanon Pike. The basic police school course consists of 12 weeks of training and assessment in law, ethics, physical fitness, and professional law enforcement standards. And MTSU turned to a Nashville distillery on January 15th to provide personal-sized bottles of hand sanitizer for students returning to its on-campus residence halls. Big Machine Distillery, which has locations in Nashville and Linville, Tennessee, produces premium handcrafted spirits led by a signature vodka along with a hand sanitizer that is sold nationwide. The company provided MTSU with 6,000 50-milliliter bottles at a reduced rate, each branded with a special label featuring the University's Lightning mascot. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Cyril, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Okay, thanks for having me. Uh, how would you explain your role in this particular NSF research? Together, we're overseeing a uh, uh, cross-institution project that is funded by NSF. Would you please define neural entrainment? What does that mean, and how is it germane to the research? Yeah, so just to give you some context, actually, on that, it's a, a relatively new concept uh, that used uh, a whole methodology called electroencephalography that actually was uh, invented in the 1920s uh, and was primarily used, actually, for uh, diagnosis, uh, but uh, has been, since the, the 60s, used more and more for research and looking at uh, how the brain relates to cognitive processes. Uh, now, for, for that project, what we are really interested in is looking at individual differences in uh, language abilities. So we are looking at uh, neural entrainment a little bit as different musicians who will play together in an orchestra where, you know, they don't necessarily have an obvious uh, metronome in the background, but yet can play with one another. And so in that respect, we're trying to understand how our brain can untrain to the speech signal. Uh, you know, how do you understand what is somebody is telling you and how does your brain really synchronize to that? So um, at the very basic level, you can uh, look at the, the representation of speech just, you know, by recording yourself uh, with a microphone. And uh, you, you can look at what we call the acoustic waveform, those up and downs in the amplitude, right? Now, if you were to trace a smooth curve around the peak, into that acoustic waveform, we get what we call the envelope. And there's been a lot of studies look, uh, showing that this envelope in the speech is very important for speech intelligibility. And over the last 15, 20 years, there have been studies uh, using uh, that electroencephalography to see if we can find traces 
in the EEG of that speech envelope. And as it turns out, there is. Uh, there is uh, plenty of research now showing that the brain and our neurons, they uh, respond, their activity respond in synchrony with those modulation of the speech envelope. Uh, do you uh, perform EEGs on subjects as part of the research and then study their brainwaves? Yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Up to last year, uh, we, we were doing that regularly in the lab. Uh, we actually have two uh, EEG systems in the lab uh, to, to perform that kind of research. And um, it's very easy. You, you have a couple of electrodes uh, that you, you put on the scalp. Usually they are um, soaked in, in some water and, and salt solution to, to improve the contact. And those electrodes are really acting like a microphone. Your, your brain, when it is active, creates a very tiny electrical current. And the electrode act as uh, a microphone to pick up those tiny electrical current and we have amplifier to be able to see them on the computer screen. But it's really as simple as that. And as I mentioned earlier, it's a methodology that has been around since the, since the 20s. So, How many subjects are participating? So the, the goal for that uh, particular project is to get around three to 400 participants. And the reason for that is because up to relatively recently in neuroscience, uh, to be able to, to capture what parts of the brain are involved in the particular cognitive uh, function or task, or for example, how do you understand you know, speech? Uh, you needed to record brain activity, but here we're interested in individual differences. We are looking at plenty, plenty of participants with variable reading skills or language skills to see how those differences in language ability correlate and co-varies with their differences in brain activities. And so at such, you usually require a much larger number of participants to be able to capture that variance uh, in, in a sample of, of participants. Uh, has the COVID-19 pandemic with protocols for social distancing and such put any kind of a crimp in your research? So unfortunately, uh, it does. And the reason for that is because by, by definition with, with uh, EEG, you cannot have social distancing. Uh, you must put those electrodes on the participant head. They are embedded in some sort of uh, elastic cap. So it's, uh, it's some of those EEG systems really look like a swim cap with electrodes that you put on somebody's head, but you still have to touch them. You know, there is no way around that. So uh, we, we basically uh, put all of this on hold for now. Um, but we were up to right before the, the, the restrictions started to, to, to get into place. We were lucky enough to already collect quite a bit of data. So we've been uh, working since on analyzing those data while in parallel conducting online studies uh, as part of the project. Um, one of the uh, other uh, um, uh, goal of that particular research study is also to investigate gene genetic variants that are associated with individual variability in, in, uh, in reading and brain activity. And so those type of study can happen online because you can design online uh, games, if you will, that measure individuals' uh, uh, reading-related abilities or, uh, or speech perception abilities. And then in parallel, you can send them DNA extraction kit like you will have with, uh, you know, companies such as, you know, Ancestry.com or 23andMe, where you basically have an envelope with a tube 
they fit in that tube and then uh, it's sent directly to the, the, the genetic institute at Vanderbilt for analysis. So uh, in that case, we don't have direct interaction with, with our participants. So it's, it's in, convenient in that way. But when it comes down to do the EEG itself, uh, that's something that will have to happen once we, we have uh, a better grasp of the, of the pandemic, unfortunately. We'll take a break right here. We will be right back. This is MTSU on the record. The mission of the June Anderson Center for Women and Non-Traditional Students is to provide education, advocacy, direct services, outreach, and programming for the MTSU campus and surrounding community on gender-related issues. The center also assists older students who are trying to balance work, college, and family. It also sponsors a monthly legal clinic, career brown bag series, book club, and a newsletter twice a year. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. MTSU's Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor offers undergraduate students a chance to study the culture and religion of the Jewish people and the Holocaust in an interdisciplinary program. Studies include history and culture, theology and philosophy, and the arts and social sciences. Courses tackle vital topics central to local and global awareness, including multiculturalism and the meanings of diversity, religious tolerance, and genocide. For the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. We're talking with Dr. Cyril Mania, who is a professor of psychology and uh, work that he has been performing under a 2019 National Science Foundation grant about neural entrainment, genetics, and what this could mean for the study of dyslexia and reading disorders. Uh, in so many children's books, especially Dr. Seuss, you find a, a great deal of repetition and they have a distinct rhythm to them when you read them to children. Does this play into uh, neural entrainment and uh, the, the, the kind of uh, repetitiveness that, that helps ingrain whatever you're trying to instill in the child? Yeah, so I'm glad you're bringing that up because actually Dr. Seuss are some of the material we are using for our experiments precisely to test that neural entrainment. The reason for that is because we uh, are particularly interested for that project into uh, how individuals use rhythmic cues in language. It's, it's really an important distinctive feature because you have languages such as my native language, like you know French, in which the stress is highly predictable. It's usually at the end of a word or a sentence, but you have other languages like English where it's not. It's highly variable. And as a result of that, uh, it can have a very important function, for example, for grammatical distinction. You have words such as permits that often have a stress on the first syllable when they are used as nouns, but are going to be stressed on the second syllable uh, when they are used as verbs. So in, in, in that respect, they, they are very important uh, uh, features uh, in specific language. And in language such as English, because it is variable, uh, it has been shown uh, almost for 30 years now that infants are going to use rhythmic cues very early on, especially notice when you're hearing a language that you're not familiar with. It just sounds like a continuous stream of speech. It's very hard to know when words start and when they end. Uh, but in your own language, even though physically that's the, the words are not separated by, by silence, you can still pretty well distinguish where they start and when they end. And one of those cues that is used seems to be the stress pattern. Uh, 
uh, in English, about 80% of words are going to start with a stressed syllable. And so as an infant, uh, uh, if you use a, a very uh, rough early strategies, every time you hear a, a syllable that sounds more salient, right, it's stressed. If you use that as a strategy to say that's the beginning of a word, you're going to be right about 80% of the time. So that's a pretty good initial strategy to start with. Um, now, there are studies that have also shown that this particular ability to uh, 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 perceive rhythmic cues in language is highly related to reading acquisition. And as such, there is a lot of evidence out there showing how individuals who have difficulty learning to read usually also have uh, more difficulty with perceiving stress patterns in spoken language. So uh, in respect to that particular project, that's why we are using Dr. Seuss, because as you, you uh, mentioned earlier, one of the main characteristics of Dr. Seuss is to have that very rhythmic pattern. And of course, you have the rhyme at the end that also is very characteristic of, of, of the Dr. Seuss stories, but you also have that rhythm that is highly predictable. So it's a very good, good mean to actually study how neurons are trained to the speech by using that very rhythmic uh, material. Since the rhythmic aspect of this is so dependent upon audio, what do you do with a child who is hard of hearing? Yeah, so that is something that is also a, a, a big question in the research. We are not working with actually uh, individuals who are hearing impaired right now. We are working primarily with adults and without any uh, history of uh, hearing deficit precisely because we want to have a better understanding of what's going on first. But uh, there is also obviously a lot, a lot of research out there to see well, while it may be an important component of reading development, uh, individuals who have hearing impaired can learn to read as well. So it may be an important component, but that doesn't mean it's essential. You say you're working primarily with adults. Uh, when it comes to neural entrainment, is it important to get to the person and work with them early in their development? Or does being an adult with a certain level of life experience actually help that person understand what's going on in their minds and, yeah. and their problems? So in, in our lab that has been the approach, we usually start with adult population that have the, uh, acquired the skill. And the idea is before trying to find neural or biological markers of potential deficit, it's important to know what's going on when there is no deficit. Uh, so we take that a little bit as the, uh, the end goal, if you will, to try to see what's going on when somebody doesn't have any reading difficulties or language uh, difficulties. Uh, and then we can backtrack and see how that changed over time during development. And as a result of this, we can eventually get neural markers or biological markers that can be potential predictors. Uh, and the advantage of that is uh, obviously don't start learning to read uh, until, you know, age four, five, you know, uh, but you learn to speak much earlier. Uh, in fact, you learn to, to, to speak in the womb, as, as we know. So um, 
at least to understand speech, you don't speak in the world, but you <laughs> learn to understand right. speech. Uh, and so uh, the advantage of this is if we can find neural markers of speech perception that are good predictors of reading uh, difficulties, then uh, you could potentially access those well before the time uh, that the child is going to learn to read. And so you can be proactive into predicting potential risk and, and you know, recommend a course of action. Okay, we'll take another break right here. We will return in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. Tennessee's farm families contribute to our state's economy, nutrition, and culture. The Tennessee Century Farms Program at MTSU's Center for Historic Preservation acknowledges farms that have been in the same family at least 100 years. To date, the program has certified more than 1,500 farms. There's no cost to nominate a farm or be part of the program. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Intercultural and Diversity Affairs Center helps to promote awareness and understanding of the wide variety of cultures represented at MTSU. The center provides information, referrals, and resources. Additionally, IDAC tries to make students from different cultures feel welcome and comfortable on campus so they can have every opportunity to fulfill their academic, social, and personal potential. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. We're talking about um, neural entrainment and genetics and their applications to dyslexia and reading disorders with Dr. Cyril Mania, who's a professor of psychology, and he has been performing research under a 2019 National Science Foundation grant. Uh, what has been the relationship with uh, you and your academic colleagues at Vanderbilt vis-a-vis -vis this research? Yeah, so at uh, MTSU, we are primarily uh, concentrating our efforts on the neurobiological aspect of that research. And so uh, in that context, we have the, the series of experiments that is looking at the neural entrainment uh, with EEG. We're also uh, conducting in parallel, uh, and we were also lucky to have some data before the pandemic started on that, that is looking at a different aspect of EEG known as resting state. And as the name indicates, it's literally looking at how brain activity is at rest when you're not doing anything. And the reason for this is because there is also research showing a strong relationship between how the resting state uh, um, pattern of neural activity relates to a lot of various uh, mental conditions and, and, and disorders. Uh, and why it has been primarily investigated in a relationship with uh, sleep disorder or, dis or, or schizophrenia or depression, more recently that has also been used to look at things that are more cognitively related, such as language and reading or music perception and so forth. So um, we are uh, also looking at those resting states and where the, the Vanderbilt team comes into play is about the genetic analysis. Um, one of the things that, because it's a, it's, a, it's a grant that is looking at the biological aspect, so we go across from the brain to the genes, and what, what they are specialized in is a, a particular methodology called genome-wise association study, which is um, really have gained a lot of popularity recently, where instead of looking at one gene, you actually scan across the entire genome. 
thanks to your, uh, you know, the human genome project that was achieved, uh, you can look at how uh, variability uh, across many people, variability in their genome relate to variability in specific traits. That can be reading abilities, but that can also be uh, their EEG resting state or their neural entrainment to speech. Usually those studies will require to look at that across thousands of participants. So that's why we've been conducting that online. Uh, there is like about 2,000 uh, participants so far that we've done. Uh, that's a good aspect, I would say, of the pandemic, since everybody is stuck home. <laughs> we've been able to recruit a lot, a lot of uh, uh, people who want to do that study, or that we'll be able to bring in the lab. So that we can link the biology to the brain function. I know some people who are developmentally disabled uh, with, or in a less sensitive time, we use the term mentally retarded. Uh, can neural entrainment have a positive effect on people who are developmentally disabled? So for that particular uh, aspect, uh, uh, I would say I really don't know of any research, uh, not to, to say that there isn't, uh, but I, I would say that uh, on other projects, including in the lab that we have done in the past, we have been interested in looking at how rhythm regularity can be used as a tool, actually, to uh, facilitate learning. And so, uh, it, it's a pretty general aspect, but I know there is uh, there are teams, for example, in Germany that have looked at, for example, how uh, rhythm regularity can help uh, uh, individuals who have Parkinson's disease uh, have a better uh, gait uh, in, in their working pattern. Uh, because you have a regular pattern that you can entrain to, usually it means that it's more predictable and can ease, uh, um, you know, your, your, your processing of information, or your anticipation. So in that respect, we've looked at, for example, if with uh, individuals who have difficulty reading, whether having a rhythmically regular pattern, such as in the doctor's source, does it help actually in that context? And the answer seems to, to, to be yes, it does. Uh, there is now converging evidence from you know, teams in France, in Germany, in, uh, in, uh, in the Netherlands, sorry, and of course the US, that seems to indicate that when you have some kind of rhythmic training that is tied to the, 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 the aspect that you're trying to, 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 to address, uh, there seems to be some bootstrapping of the learning process that happens. And so that's also one of the reasons in that project we're not just looking at rhythm in general, but also comparing those particular conditions when you have a a very rhythmic pattern, something that is highly predictable versus something that is a little bit less predictable, does it provide any type of facilitating uh, uh, aspect uh, that it helps you uh, with the, uh, the understanding of what you're presenting with? Despite my lack of familiarity with the academic literature, uh, this raises all kinds of questions in my layperson's brain, like perhaps, since hip-hop music is so rhythmic, could it be an aid, actually, in helping people who might otherwise have very little interest in reading? Right. So there is actually studies looking at how different uh, music genres 
uh, have uh, those type of effects. So it's it's uh, it's also something that uh, both of our group at Vanderbilt and MTSU have been interested in uh, as part of other projects. But we are looking at how music training may be used as a, a tool to facilitate uh, language learning. Uh, and in, so in that respect, we uh, uh, have uh, looked at, uh, in some case, uh, what kind of music uh, can help versus others and what aspect of the music can help versus others. But those are definitely questions that are out there. Uh, when do you expect to get back on track? Is it totally dependent on the degree to which the pandemic dies down? Yeah, so actually in the fall, we had started working on a uh, safety protocol because there are uh, EEG labs around the country that have started, even though most of them are more, I think, from the clinical aspect of things, but there are safety procedures that have been put into place. Uh, we were hoping to get back on track in the fall, but obviously the pandemic started to increase again, uh, especially in Tennessee, so we, we hold on on this, but we if things are starting to improve, uh, I would be hopeful that in the second half of the spring semester, uh, a combination of that plus uh, eventually the increase in vaccination rates will allow us to, to get back uh, on the research. But um, we are not necessarily waiting for the pandemic to be gone because we know that's not going to happen anytime soon. But it's a, it's a combination of factors because in the end, we, uh, we have a lot of students that are involved in that research and, and we want to make sure they are safe in the way that uh, they're conducting it. So. Yeah, so it wouldn't, it would be a shame if you had to don all manner of PPE and hazmat suits just to be able to carry out this yeah, research. Yeah, and, and, and that's part of the deal right now. It's, uh, the part of the safety protocol will, will definitely involve having, you know, face shields plus mask and have the participants, you know, isolated in a particular type part of the lab uh, after they, they've been prepared. So it's, it, it is a little bit tedious. Uh, but it's feasible uh, with, with, you know, a lot, a lot of, of uh, um, uh, careful procedure. Dr. Cyril Mania, thank you for being our guest. Thank you. We'll be right back. The Experiential Learning Scholars Program at MTSU gives students a chance to go outside the classroom and obtain hands-on experience in their chosen fields of study. They'll have the opportunity to give something back to the community through service learning as they gain acceptance for graduate study. Students should be able to select EXL-designated courses from major requirements and general studies requirements to complete the 16 to 18 hours of EXL coursework. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The American Democracy Project is a nonprofit initiative which strives for greater voter registration and civic participation among young people at MTSU and at campuses nationwide. Through encouragement from professors and peers, young adults are shown the value of being more active citizens in their community, their state, and their nation. ADP seeks to nurture programs that raise the campus community's level of engagement with society. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Gina Fan has the middle moment. Entertainer Chris Young gave more than his name to a renovated 1960s MTSU cafeteria that's now an innovative, experiential learning lab and live performance venue for students in the College of Media and Entertainment and across the university. 
At the January grand opening, the former student also reinforced MTSU's international reputation for educating professionals in multiple fields to live and work in the real world and to chase a few dreams, too. When people talk about the recording industry program here and the music program here, it really is important. And this is my hometown, and this means the world to me. So I can't wait for people, whether they are musicians, comedians, entertainers, people that just want to learn how to engineer to produce, videographers, photographers, anything. I hope everyone finds a use for this space and I, I really hope everyone enjoys it. And it's just been an honor to be a small part of this and thank every single person that's here today for letting me have something like this. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU On The Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.